This is a podcast from National Music Camp 2019. Today, I'm joined by two of the world's finest trumpet players. Firstly, David Elton, the principal trumpet of the London Symphony Orchestra. He has also been the principal trumpet of the Symphony Orchestras of Sydney, West Australia, and Adelaide. He has also performed with the New York Philharmonic, the Mahler Chamber Orchestra, the Australian Chamber Orchestra, and the Hong Kong Philharmonic. Joining David, we have Brent Grapes, who won the United States National Trumpet Competition not once, but twice in a row and who has performed with orchestras in the US, Australia, China, and New Zealand. He is now the principal trumpet of the West Australian Symphony Orchestra, but before this, he held the principal trumpet role with the Auckland Philharmonia. All I can say is, wow, how do you do it? You're both very busy juggling careers as orchestral musicians, soloists, chamber musicians, teachers, husbands, fathers, and more. Is there any secret to it, or is it just something that you're working out as you go? I think it's something that you work out as you go, for sure, like anything else. And, um, you know, as, you're, as, uh, as our lives all evolve and, um, you know, one day, oh, now, now you have a wife and then, oh, now you have some children, um, your, the demands on your time will always change and you just find a way to fit it in. Um, and I used to be someone who would need, you know, an hour-long routine every morning of a certain, you know, three different method books. Um, and now I just don't have that luxury, but that's okay. And actually having children gave me a bit of perspective on actually, you know what, you don't actually need to do that. You can, you can do it much quicker if you're more efficient with your time. So it's taught me a lot about efficiency. And what about yourself, David? I have to agree with Brent. I think he's answered that so beautifully. Um, it's hard to say much more. I mean, of course, at some stage, both Brent's alluded to the fact that we, we did a lot of practice. And there's no denying that when we were young and when we were students. And we did those three method books a day and did those routines and played those studies. But now it's about um, sort of balancing and doing what you need to do when you need to do it. And, and also just trying to be in good shape, I would think, don't you think, Brent? Just being in really good form when you need to be, but also taking the downtime when you can. 
Absolutely, yeah, and that's one thing that I think the, the busier you get, the, the more important that rest and recovery time becomes. You get plenty of time with the instrument on your face at work um, and um, it's the time off that actually becomes the harder one to fit in. But I think um, something that actually Dave mentioned on Monday night during his interview was uh, talking about how important it was to practice musical examples, not just to practice the technical stuff and the technical books, but actually to practice etudes. And I would say that one of the things I have learned is that it's better for me to spend the limited amount of time I do have to practice to play music, partly just because I enjoy that more to play something that's um, you know, got a real charm to it. So how did you get started playing the trumpet? Is there a specific story to it? Oh, not really. I, I began with the violin and um, just always wanted to play the trumpet. So um, began lessons, played in the band, uh, played in youth orchestra and went to university studying the trumpet and, and we kind of went through that path. Was there an early passion or was it just that you started and you were good at it and you just kept going? No, absolutely. I think I heard the sound of the trumpet in the band and the, the music they played and I heard it in the street and I heard guys at school playing and I thought that's really a sound mm. I want to make and was it was very clear that was the instrument that I wanted to play. And were there any specific musicians or trumpet players you heard early on and thought, yeah, wow, I want to do that? For me, I'd say, yeah, um, probably two standouts. Um, I was fascinated by James Morrison, of course, as a young player growing up in Australia. This, this standout documentary that was on TV when we were young guys. And, and that was fascinating, watching his life and how he came to jazz and his relationship with Don Burroughs and how all that sort of side of things. I remember lying down on, TV, on the floor watching TV, mesmerised by that. And also when Wynton Marsalis recorded those Haydn and Hummel concertos and that was on TV, I just remember being spellbound by that. Uh, so I was drawn to the trumpet when uh, we, our primary school was taken on a school excursion and we went to um, actually watch the West Australian Symphony Orchestra that I'm now playing in. They um, did a schools concert and one of the um, excerpts that they played was um, the trumpet solo from um, Gershwin's An American in Paris. And I remember just being blown away by the sound and it made me, I was just awash with emotion and I never felt that before in my life. So um, from that moment I went home and said, Mum, I want to learn the trumpet. Um, and thankfully I was afforded that opportunity and... Um, yeah. And embouchure is always one of those uh, tricky things to discuss for trumpet players. What makes a good one? How do you acquire one? And how do you know when you've achieved one? Ooh, difficult question. <laughs> Brent, would you like to answer this? Oh, well, I'll start it off and you can <laughs> complete the answer. It's a very tricky, um, tricky question. Uh, I would start by saying that everyone is different. So um, there is no book that's going to have a picture and say this is what your mouth should look like, this is what the, mouth, the embouchure should look like and how the mouthpiece should sit. Um, obviously all our teeth are different, our jaw is different, we have different genetics, our, everything is different to every individual. That said, um, if you have something that looks completely bizarre, you, you do need to um, take the advice of your teacher if they're suggesting that you maybe need to relocate more to the middle of the mouth. Um, and... And I think the key is that everything has to be in balance. If you've got an embouchure that works, you'll know because you'll be able to play without forcing. You'll have a beautiful sound. You'll be, you, you won't have range issues and things will start to work for you. And if you don't have those things and your embouchure looks very strange, or if you don't have those things and your embouchure looks picture perfect, then I would say you need to look at ways to improve that. And how would you go about working out what the next piece of the puzzle is for you in that situation? Firstly, as a teacher, I would um, obviously I want to be able to hear that the, the student has an embouchure that is functional. And so if they've got an embouchure that looks bizarre and yet they can do all of these things, then we might still look at, over time, perhaps adjusting it so that, um, so that that student will have a long-term career. 
because if you're doing something completely bizarre, it might work for a short time, might not have any longevity. If a student comes to me and their embouchure looks fine, but they've got some range issues, then obviously I'm going to try and um, well work through all the technical elements. For me, like flexibility is a big one. It's very telling if someone has um, the ability to get around the register with reasonable ease and not pivoting and not having the mouthpiece move around too much. These are exercises that um, I use as a kind of barometer to see how how functional things are going to be. And so that's like the um, Charles Colin or the Walter Smith kind of things, or is there a specific set of... Oh, flexibility is in pretty much every... You know, Alan Bitsudi has some in his book. You, know, you can use sections of the Arben. Um, Bailin is a, is a one that I keep coming back to. Um, but uh, you can make up your own exercises, uh, basically anything, you know, moving around the harmonic series of the instrument and just trying to do that with free air. And if you're finding that it's um, consistently not working, then embouchure is one of the things that you would need to look at. Did you have any other thoughts on the same topic? No, I thought Brent answered that brilliantly, actually. It was fascinating, yeah. Really, really bang on. Mm -hmm. And when you're teaching, do you advocate for things like uh, lip buzzing and mouthpiece buzzing, and how do you approach those kinds of topics? Yeah, I guess it's dependent on the student. Again, you you look at what, what their strengths are and what areas that they may want to improve, and you devise, I think, an individual method that, that suits that student and hopefully guides them towards um, better performances. So that may involve some lip buzzing. And sometimes um, you find that it doesn't work. You, you've got to monitor these things. Lip buzzing works very well for some people. And I think also there's some, there's some people that are strong, strongly against it. And so you have to sort of see how that works for the student and how that fits in. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I had the privilege of studying in the, um, in the United States with uh, Raymond Mace, who was a founding member of the American Brass Quintet and uh, principal trumpet in the New York City Ballet and just a, a, an incredible teacher. But it was fascinating that he never, ever buzzed never did free buzzing, never did any buzzing. It didn't work for him. didn't stop his students from doing it. And as Dave said, you find what works for the student. You hear stories of both classical and commercial players going on what are known as mouthpiece safaris. I've heard, for example, that Doc Severinsen has a literal bathtub full of mouthpieces he's purchased throughout his career. And it's not uncommon to see certain vintage Bach mouthpieces selling for astronomical amounts of money. How important is it to have found the perfect mouthpiece? Is there such a thing? How do you know if you found it? If you're searching for that perfect mouth, it's a long search. It'll be a lifetime's work and you'll never find what you're looking for. And there will be a couple of bathtubs involved for the mouthpieces. (laughs) So when do you know to call it quits and just say, you know, this this is near enough? Still trying to find that out, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So how many bathtubs do you have so far full of mouthpieces? That's confidential information that we can't divulge in this situation. But I mean, I think we've we've all gone through you know, trying different mouthpieces. And it's not necessarily to find range, it's to find sound. And both Brent and I would have piccolo trumpets, E-flat trumpets, C trumpets, B-flat trumpets, rotary trumpets, flugelhorns, cornets. Mm-hmm. And so unfortunately, uh, different mouthpieces required for most of them. I mean, you can cross over a few of them, B-flat and C sometimes works. But depending what you're doing, if you're playing a lead show, you, you do need a lead mouthpiece is very different to a mouthpiece you might play second trumpet in the orchestra on. So dependent, again, on what you're doing and what your repertoire is and what you think. There is a, a case where some people might have a few in their collection. Absolutely. I would say as well that there's a... Um when you're, as Dave said, when you're searching for that mouthpiece, it's about the sound. Um, and as we've said a few times, there's a, um, it's such an individual thing. Everyone's mouth shape will be different. Everyone is going to have a different dental structure. And the mouthpiece that you're looking for might not be the standard 7C that you hand a beginner. It might not be the other standard size that a teacher might say, this is the standard size. And I would just caution everyone when you're looking for that mouthpiece not to get caught into 
the fads. So there will be um, there was I remember quite a few years back there was a real fad that oh, all orchestral mouthpieces are massive and people started playing these colossal buckets of mouthpieces. And I think uh, it can have a very detrimental effect. So you've always got to go back to, as Dave said, the sound. You know, does it work? Do I, I, might, I might sound good on one note, but I, do I sound good across the whole register? And I can think of two of my, the, some of the players, I think, that are absolutely the best in the world. And one of them changes mouthpieces daily or just on a pen on how it feels and sounds absolutely amazing. And the other one has had the same mouthpiece his, his whole life. And I know countless examples of great players who are extreme to extreme and just whatever works for people. Mm. Yeah. One of the other things that has uh, blown me away uh, with regards to trumpet playing is also the number of methods and schools of thought on how to approach the instrument and how to develop as a player on the instrument. You both have a lot of teaching experience. Have you found any particular approaches that seem generally to be the more helpful of the approaches out there? Uh, look, there are so many fantastic methods. There are so many fantastic options for young trumpet players out there. Once it worked for me, well, it'll be a long list, and it would be for any trumpet player. You ask. I keep coming back to um, the, the flow studies of Vincent Chikovitz. I keep coming back to the James Stamp method, uh, the the violin flexibilities that I mentioned before. Arbens, obviously, for your basic Schlossberg. The, the list goes on and on. I think I would say when you're looking for the method books that work. Um, I'm reminded of when a story my teacher told of uh, he was in the practice room teaching a student and then they heard this person warming up in the room next to them, a trumpet player, and it sounded absolutely incredible. And they were just doing the basic warm-up stuff that we all know. And it turned out that the person next door was Phil Smith, the principal (laughs) trumpet of the New York Philharmonic, and he was doing exactly the same warm-ups as what that student did every day. And the difference was he was just sounded a million bucks on them but i would the, what i took out of that story was though that um the great players they use the same methods as everyone else there's a reason that you know stamp chikovitz these names keep getting thrown around is because they they work and the if something isn't working for you it's often our execution or application of them that might be the problem so i've always wondered from the perspective of someone who's uh, played the instrument to a very high level for quite a quite a long time when you're practicing what's going on inside your head Hmm. Depends what time of the day it is. Uh-huh. Um, could be, where's that next coffee going to come from? But no, I mean, we, I think the number one thing you have to focus on, and I, I would say that I do think about, is what's the, what's the quality of sound that's coming out? Because trumpet is a very, it's a physical instrument, of course, but if you look at someone and you, you think, why does that sound good or why does that not sound good? It's not evident necessarily by looking at someone. It, the way we have to... Um, diagnose good playing is by the quality of sound so first and foremost i'm thinking about the sound quality singing and hearing in my head before i play the the noise i want to be making and that's really what i'm doing and then musically singing and then that's the first thing and if that's and then when the the results aren't coming the way you want then you can find ways to try and to try and go about that but for me first and foremost is sound the whole time and breathing as part of sound you know you have to am i breathing well am i why isn't this working or why is it working yeah absolutely you know your sound is your calling card it is the it's the first thing someone will hear about you and uh it's it's interesting in audition settings uh, it can it sets the first impression it's just so critical to to everything we do as musicians and in a way our sound is our our identity so we, we place a lot of stock in that and obviously it's very important when you're practicing to focus on that the other thing i would i would say is that we I try and always find a really musical approach even when I'm dealing with a technical problem. 
so when I'm, I'm practicing and I might be struggling to get the articulation to sound quite crisp enough, I try and find a musical way. Maybe there's a note I can bring out in the phrase that means everything else will spark a little, little more and give the articulation the color I want. But I, I try and link everything to a musical goal, not just to think in terms of technique. Because the danger often I find is that I will become very analytical and I'll start thinking about where's my tongue position, what's my air doing, and think about muscles that I actually have, you know, that are involuntary muscles that I can't control. So thinking musically helps me to keep a big picture perspective when I'm practicing. And what about when you're performing? Does the focus of your attention change at all or would you say the two are quite one and the same? That's a good question because we were talking about this with the students just today. Um, I think in performance... You can't think technically at all. You have to be singing, you have to be hearing what you want to sound like and going 100% for that. And any time I feel like, oh, my chops feel a bit not so great today, wow, you know, is this going to be okay? That's a thought I throw away immediately from my head and try and get out. I do my best to get rid of it and think, how would I sound on this phrase if I was playing my absolute best? Hear that sound. And then, and then even again, how would my favourite player in the world, be it Phil Smith or one of the people that really inspired me, Hawken Hanberg, how would they play? How would they sound? Hear that sound in your head. And as soon as you switch to that side of your brain, to that mental sound, that's exactly what I go for. And that, that's what I think about when I play the music and the line. Yeah, yeah, well said. So have either of you ever encountered any major obstacles or problems uh, in taking your playing to you know, the next level, so to speak? Um, you know things that maybe you weren't sure at the time that you would actually overcome um, and if so how did you how did you go about getting through that oh yeah there's a there's a long line of speed bumps along the way a very long line still of speed a few, bumps a few around at the moment <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me I had a uh, I had a lot of embouchure issues and uh, certainly year nine going through high school I absolutely loved the trumpet but I, I hit a bit of a um, a roadblock and I had a fantastic teacher who was very supportive and um, encouraged me to change some things with my lips with varying degrees of success. Um, as anyone going through an obviously change would know, it's very hard to be able to play the full range of the instrument then be told, actually, you will get better if you reduce your range down to you know, a fifth for a year. And that was something I really, really struggled with um, in transition. How long did that take you to get through, that sort of change? I think I started in year nine and I think I only really got through it probably... A year after fourth year uni. Wow. It yeah, was a long yeah. time. Yeah. A long time. Amazing. Certainly got over it. I and mean, we got through it. That's great. It's inspiring to hear that. That was the main one for me, the main speed hump along the way. Um, there have been lots of others. And it, it's funny, I, funny that I can't even remember most of them now because when you're in them, they are really, really tough. And it, um, you're, the fact that you can't get through some of these things is... Um, it's really debilitating mentally. Um, one other one does come back. I remember I was um, studying um, just with a private teacher and I'd, I'd finished uni and I was I was just had a few weeks where everything just felt really, really rough. And I, I went and saw a different private teacher and um, and I was just reminded, oh, use a bit more air. And it, was, it seems so crazy now that that's the thing that I was being reminded of. But um, when you get caught up in your own head, sometimes it's the, it's the real absolute basics that you need to be reminded of on the way through oh yeah when we focus and think too much about embouchure it's easy the air stops first and foremost that's got to be going and then things can work well um i'm sure there's 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 roadblocks there's things you want to do better there's all i this this parts of my technique of course i'm just still trying to develop there's pieces i want to learn there's things i want to play better it's i don't think 
I don't think it ever ends. And I think that's what draws us to playing the instrument and makes us still want to practice and make that sound, make it better and easier every day. Wasn't there that story about um, someone interviewed Pablo Casals, a famous cellist mm-hmm. at age 80, and uh, said, why, why do you still practice? And he said, well, I think I'm getting better. <laughs> <laughs> that journey never stops. So what would you say are the core skills of being a principal orchestral trumpet player? Hmm. So you've got to be able to play the, the parts that come up and you have to commit to a way of playing that, that people want to go with. I don't think it's about talking and telling people how to do things or anything like that by any, by any stretch of the imagination. I think you have to have a strong musical idea, um, a strong stylistic idea and have really good radar because you're you're not just trying to fit in with the conductor you've got to adapt and fit in with the orchestra around you who played that solo before you how did they play it how did they phrase it what rhythm did you know what stylization is there and fit into that and into any situation and that can be varying and different wherever you are so just being aware of where where things are rhythmically as musically i think they're really key skills that are as important as playing the trumpet yeah, yeah, really well said, Dave. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, as Dave said, just being a, a conduit from the from the conductor, from the concertmaster, and just uh, always having your ears out everywhere, as every musician does, but as a, a principal trumpet, I think you do have a, a special responsibility in that regard. And as Dave said, with like leading the phrasing and, and being just by virtue of being that top voice, um, I think being a principal trumpet, having the, for lack of a better word, power, the colour that, that can carry your sound across an orchestra so that without working too hard, you can musically offer a little bit of leadership and suggestions as to how this everything should be phrased and shaped. And do you think that's a skill that anyone can acquire? I think so. With, with listening, you know, a part of being a musician and growing as a musician from a, a young, young age is not only practising your instrument a lot, it's, I think, listening, having the radio on all the time. Because, you know, it's very easy to listen to the music you love at home, be it you love Beethoven symphonies or I love Mahler and I only listen to Mahler and I only listen to American orchestras. I think the more styles, the more differing recordings, differing conductors, and then listening to Baroque music and the way a singer might something. And it doesn't even have to be active listening. If you're in the car and driving and it's on in the background, I think you it somehow seeps in and all of a sudden you're playing a phrase and you know that when you're playing Pulcinella, you've heard that, I don't know, you've heard the way a singer would sing that bit and then it informs your phrasing. So I think listening a lot, anyone can do it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Absolutely. Yep. So I have some rapid fire questions for you both. New York Philharmonic or Chicago Symphony Orchestra? That's not a quick answer, is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what era and, you know, what repertoire? Yeah, exactly. It's a very dynamic situation. Your question is a better answer to that one. <laughs> uh, Phil Smith or Bud Herseth? Mm, both brilliant you know i mean how can you i just think they're such both favorites i can't i love them both yeah they both they're both fathers of you know, the 
principal trumpet orchestral tradition, I c- I'm not going to... That's no. what we grew up dreaming to sound like. <laughs> so no answers so far. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> it's going pretty well. Yep. Um, so favourite orchestral trumpet solo? Oh, tough one. I like the uh, Gershwin Piano Concerto second movement. I haven't decided yet. There's so many that I like. <laughs> Song of the Nightingale, Stravinsky. Mm. Favourite trumpet player? There's too many. Favourite trumpet playing musician? I would go with um, Louis Armstrong. Clifford Brown. Favourite concerto? Tomasi. I like some of those new Scandinavian Ariel by Gruber. One book on a desert island. Collected short stories of Truman Capote. Constellations of Philosophy by um, Alain de Baton. One CD. Bach Cantatas, Andreas Scholl, Herovig Conducting. Uh, Yo-Yo Ma, Bach Cello Suites. Wazo or LSO? <laughs> <laughs> I know where the beaches are better. <laughs> so uh, just for any trumpet geeks that may, may be listening, and I'm sure that um, there's a lot of trumpet geeks at heart, what instruments are you currently playing on? So I use uh, Bach um, B flat and C trumpet. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, our orchestra own a set of uh, Yamaha C cornets, a Yamaha piccolo, Yamaha E flat D. Um, I use a Galileo rotary trumpet, but Bach is my main go-to for my orchestral horn. No, I often use a Bach um, Malone pipe in the orchestra, mm-hmm. or and a Bach B flat trumpet, and I also have the new Yamaha um, C trumpet, the Chicago Generation Three, which is extraordinary. So that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, thank you both so much for your, for your time and your interesting answers. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Just to end, I thought I would ask you if you had any final words of wisdom for young players out there. I think just as, as Dave said at the start, just practice hard, practice you know, while, you're, while you're young and enthusiastic and you've got a little, little bit more time. Just practice every minute. And, and as Dave said, just listen. Listening, listening is just so key. And remember when it goes, when it's not going really, really well and you, sometimes it's better to take... To, oh, that was the case for me. I had to, sometimes I had to step away. I over-practiced when I was young. And I just thought, today's a day to take off and go swimming in the beach. And I always played better the next day. Yeah, on that note, it's good to have a bit of um, perspective as well because um, when you're wrapped up in it and when I was young, I, I certainly put all my identity into that instrument and it's... it's um, it, it was a humbling experience for me to have children and realise actually, you know what, there are trumpet playing is a really important part of my life and it's very special. But you know, there is a world out there outside that practice room, and um, being a part of that and enriching your life with everything that life has to offer makes you a better musician at the end of the day. Absolutely.